Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Caleb. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And I'm actually doing a pastoral residency program here at our church, just uh, getting close to, to my, finishing my first year in the two-year program. And Christ Community does a pastoral residency to train up the next generation of pastoral leaders. And I just want to say thanks to you as a church for investing in me as, as a leader and as I've been growing. And it's been a really great place for my wife and I to belong this year. So thanks, guys. Um, but now I just wanted to pray for us real quick uh, before we jump into the message this morning. Dear Lord, uh, thank you so much uh, for this church, and thank you for the privilege it is to gather together with other believers um, to praise and worship you and to hear your word um, proclaimed and spoken to us. God, I ask that you uh, work through me today so that I can speak your word clearly and effectively, and that we would all be attuned um, to hear what you'd have to say, say to us today, uh, illuminates our hearts and minds that we may obey you uh, more faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, have you ever wondered what would happen if the sun suddenly disappeared? Now, if you're like me and this has kept you up late at night uh, one evening, I just want to give you some information that I figured out this past week. So if the sun were to disappear, like right now, within eight minutes, the entire world would be in complete darkness, which is actually super scary for me uh, to think that uh, the sun could actually have disappeared already right now, and we wouldn't know for a whole eight minutes. But even scarier than that is when I learned that uh, it's not a, it wouldn't be a quick and easy, uh, simple, like, the, like life wouldn't cease to exist automatically if the sun were, were to disappear. I always thought the sun disappears like that. Life on Earth just is finished. However, because the Earth's core contains a lot of heat, life would survive on Earth for a couple of days, which is really scary because it would take a couple days for the temperatures to decrease, but after a few days, everyone left on the surface of the planet would die of hypothermia. In a couple more months, all the surfaces of the ocean would freeze over, the atmosphere would collapse, radiation would start to seep into our planet, and our Earth would just be floating aimlessly throughout the universe, uh, wandering with no place to go, nothing to hold it in place. The sun is absolutely necessary for life as we know it. Uh, and we, can, we cannot survive even more than a few days without it. And in our passage today, as we just heard read over us, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And he uses that image to communicate something about who he is and how we can find life in him. If you're new with us this morning, we've been walking through the Gospel of John this summer, this middle section, looking for signs of life. And in this series, we're seeing how John the Evangelist has recorded these different miraculous actions of Jesus and these words and images that Jesus uses to describe who he is, these signs. And these point us to who Jesus is, his character, and also how we can go about finding the fullness of life in him. And this week, we're looking at the sign of light, Jesus calling himself the light of the world. And we're going to pick back up uh, where we left off last week in John chapter 8, verse 12. And so you can turn there in your Bibles or in your phones now as we get started to go through that this morning. And this is picking it back up from last week where Pastor Ben left us, where Jesus is in Jerusalem for this Feast of Booths. And it's a big festivity, this huge kind of national holiday for Israel. And everyone from across the country is in Jerusalem. The city is buzzing with a lot of energy and excitement, maybe similar to kind of how we experienced the 4th of July festivities last weekend here in Kansas City. But the city is buzzing with a lot of energy, and people are trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. Who is Jesus? And in that context, in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So today, as we go through this verse and this passage in Scripture, we're going to see that Jesus does three things for us this morning. First, he tells us the reality, what's actually true. He gives us an invitation, and then he makes a promise. So we're going to see today the reality, an invitation, and a promise this morning. So first, the reality. Jesus tells them, I am your light. Jesus claims to be the light of the world, the one who gives light to everyone, including you and me. And he's making this truly audacious and arrogant claim to be the light for everyone. And it's so uh, arrogant and audacious that by the end of this chapter, we will see people will want to arrest and stone him because for what he is saying today. And so what is he claiming? What is this great claim Jesus is making about himself by claiming to be the light of the world? First, Jesus is claiming as the light to fulfill all the Hebrew Bible the Old Testament anticipated. So like I said, Jesus makes a statement during the Feast of Booths. Now this feast and this holiday would celebrate and commemorate Israel's wandering in the desert for 40 years after they had left the Exodus in Egypt and before they entered the Promised Land. And during this festival, when everyone has gathered in Jerusalem, on the last uh, week, or last day of this week, the priests would light these four huge lamps in the temple court in Jerusalem where Jesus is making this statement. And these four lamps which would shine their light and their glow all over Jerusalem, people would be able to see it. And it was supposed to represent and help people remember how God led the people of Israel through the wilderness using a cloud of fire and smoke in the Exodus story. So this is a picture kind of demonstrating what that was like for them, that this, there, God came down and his presence dwelt in this pillar of fire and smoke and it protected the Israelites as they crossed through the Red Sea from the Egyptians and then it guided them throughout the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. And this pillar of fire and smoke, it rested on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and eventually on the temple in Jerusalem as God's presence dwelling with his people. But after the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and the, and the Israelites were taken off into exile, the glory was no longer seen in the temple. The, the pillar of fire was no longer on top of that temple. And then even when they rebuilt the temple, 70 years later, the, God's glory didn't return to Israel's temple. And so every year, the priests would light these four lamps in anticipation and hoping that one day God would come back and be with his people. And in that context, Jesus steps in and says, I am the light. He's also referencing the prophet Isaiah, who is a prophet speaking during the time of Israel's exile. And Isaiah, he, says, he said this, and Jesus references this passage from Isaiah right after the crowds are claiming, hey, the Messiah can't be from Galilee. It can't be Jesus because no prophet, no Messiah comes from Galilee. But Jesus references this scripture, which predicts the light that would come to restore Israel would come from Galilee. And Isaiah says, but there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And later, Isaiah continues developing this theme of light, and he clarifies that the light that's going to come is not just for Israel, but actually for the entire world as well. He says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he records God telling him, it is too light a thing that you, speaking to the Messiah, the servant, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So when Jesus steps in in front of these four huge lamps, he's claiming to be the light. And in doing so, he's claiming to be God's guiding presence 
which is supposed to be with his people, but not just for Israel, but actually for the entire world. Jesus is claiming as the light to be the source of goodness, truth, and beauty for everyone, just like the sun is. Because without light, without the light we have from the sun that lights up the entire world, there would be no life on earth, as I already mentioned. And we don't even need to think about like a doomsday scenario of of the sun disappearing to, to, to know that's true. We all experience that every year during winter. If you're like me, when the stays are short and you get a lot less sunlight, it's a lot more overcast during winter, I just feel my mood go down. I just feel a lot more tired. I feel a lot less energy to do things I normally enjoy doing. And so many of us experience that because light gives life. Light, light enables us to enjoy the goodness of life. In a similar way, Jesus is saying, as I am the creator of everything that is good, without me, you can't experience goodness in this life. Also, without light, you can't see what's true. The sun gives light for us to see what's going on. And Jesus is also claiming to be the source of all truth. He's saying in verses 13 through 19, he's having this long debate with the Pharisees over whether or not his testimony can be counted as true because he's speaking on his own. And he's saying, I do have the right to speak accurately about myself, about God, about the world, because of my unique relationship with God the Father. And I love how how C.S. Lewis points this and and brings this out about how Christianity is true. C.S. Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. For me, following Jesus has such great explanatory power to describe why the world is the way it is. You know, for me, Christianity is the only world religion, the only philosophy or worldview that can explain both why our world is so beautiful and amazing and good, because God created it, and at the same time so broken and full of suffering and evil because of human sin. And at the same time, it, it, it gives us the reason for why we have hope and we have a desire to see the world made right, to see justice in this world, because we know God is going to make things new one day, and he's a God who redeems. Without light, you also can't experience beauty. Not only is following Jesus good and true, but it's also beautiful as well. And without light, right, you can't see, you can't enjoy any uh, beautiful artwork. But even in our gallery, right out there, if you were to walk out after service, or maybe you looked at the art before service today, you'll notice we have these really, really nice gallery lighting. That Kelly Cruz, our gallery curator, spends a lot of time making sure when we have new art in there, that's displayed with the right kind of light to make sure you can see the art for all it's worth. And in a similar way, Jesus as the true light of the world, enables us to experience true beauty. And even if you're skeptical about who Jesus is, and, or even what the New Testament authors, how they describe him to be, you've got to admit, there's something so compelling about Jesus. For some reason, this Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago, this backwoods guy who is completely irrelevant for most of his life, for some reason, the vision of the good life he has has captivated people for 2,000 years. And centuries and centuries after he's supposedly dead, people are still gathering to follow him. Even if, you, even if people don't decide to follow him, they're still captivated by Jesus and the picture of life that he presents us because he's the source of beauty. And whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you want to believe it's true or not, Jesus in this passage is claiming to be that, the light of the whole world, the source of beauty, truth, and goodness for everyone. And just like the sun, that even if we don't think about what would happen if it would disappear, we're still enjoying uh, the light that it gives us in the same way, even if you don't acknowledge Jesus as the light, he is that for you. And in doing so, Jesus is making this, this extraordinary claim 
when he says that I'm the light of the world, and essentially he's claiming divinity. And, and, this, and this comes up, and this is why the Pharisees and the crowds are so upset with Jesus in verses 19 and 20. Because he just tells them eventually, once he goes through explaining how he's the source of truth, in verse 19 he tells them, if you, you knew me, you would know my father also. And claiming to be the light of the world, he's claiming that you can't know God without knowing me. And this is incredibly profoundly arrogant, if it's not true. And, and I love how John has to specify and clarify that no one arrested him. Because if you're hearing Jesus, what he's truly saying, you'd be shocked that the people there didn't arrest him right there because what he's saying is so drastic and blasphemous. And Jesus keeps using this phrase in this passage. Um, he keeps saying, I am. And in doing so, he is referencing the divine name of the Hebrew people, I am who I am, or Yahweh. And you may think maybe there's some ambiguity here if Jesus is saying, I, just, I am this or that, or if he's saying, I am, as in I am Yahweh. But in, in, in Greek, which is the language John is using to uh, record Jesus' words, there are many different ways to say, I am this or I am that. And Jesus is using the one way that references the divine name. He keeps saying, ago and me, over and over and over again. And the crowds and the Pharisees keep trying to take him to mean, like you can't really mean you're Yahweh, so we're gonna keep trying to interpret what you're saying in an opposite way. They keep asking him, who are you? Who are your father? But by the end of this chapter, as we will see in a few weeks when we finish it up later, by the end of this chapter, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And the crowds pick up stones to kill him. They finally get it. They've tried to interpret him every other way, and they're like, no, he is claiming equality with God to be Yahweh incarnate. He can't do this. This is blasphemous. And the truth is that Jesus being the light, as in the personal presence of God that's supposed to guide us, the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty, that's actually bad news for us as human beings, which is why the Pharisees are so upset at Jesus and wanting to arrest and stone him. Because just like light, though it is good and true and beautiful, unmediated exposure to that light is actually deadly. So even though if, our, if the light were to disappear and the, the sun were to disappear, all life on our planet would, would, would finish in a couple days, if our planet were just 1% closer to the sun than we are now, our planet would be inhospitable. And even we experience this in our daily life. Without an ozone layer in our atmosphere around our world, we, no life could exist on Earth. Uh, without wearing sunglasses, if it's a really sunny day, your light, the light is going to overwhelm your eyes. If you're like me and you're really pasty white, you need to put on sunscreen to go out on a hot sunny day, otherwise your skin's gonna get burned. We can't, we can't experience light unmediated, otherwise it will overwhelm us. In a similar way, Jesus is saying the same thing. Human beings are too sinful, too broken, too impure to come to the holy light and survive. And Jesus says this in verse 21 and 24. He says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, and Jesus is referencing going back to God, being with God the Father, you cannot come. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus' light is too good, too beautiful, too true for us sinful human beings to experience unmediated. And we all intuitively know this. As much as we may try um, today, and some of us do try in our culture, to just minimize and push away our feelings of guilt or shame, and, and please hear me when I say that, I, I, there are plenty of things that we feel guilt and shame about that we shouldn't. But I think we, should all, we could all agree that a person who never felt guilt or shame, 
about the way they treat other people and, and harm themselves, that person's emotions aren't functioning rightly. They're not reflecting reality properly. Because that emotional response, like all our emotional responses, are meant to clue us in to something and point, and point a greater truth to us. That when we do things that hurt ourselves and hurt others and we're living in ways that are contrary to the way God created us to live, it's natural to have that feeling of guilt or shame. And that points us into the fact that something's not right with what I'm doing or who I am right now. And it stings and hurts and doesn't feel good. But just like the heat from the sun, you know, stings on your skin, but it's, that's showing you, hey, if you stay out in the sun too much longer, you're going to burn, or you're going to become dehydrated. In the same way, that those feelings of guilt or shame help us understand and see that without coming to Jesus, without any kind of mediation, his light is too holy for us to survive. So this is the reality, that Jesus is your light, whether you like it or not. And we all need that light, right? We need Jesus' light as, as the source of goodness, truth, and beauty. But at the same time, unmediated exposure to that light is deadly and will overwhelm us because of our sin. So what do we do in light of this truth? Jesus, this is where Jesus steps in and gives us an invitation. And he says, follow me. Now, this makes sense when you're in darkness, what you've got to do is follow the light. So just even right here in this room, if we were to have an emergency, like a fire were to go off and the light and the power were to cut off and the lights would go off, we have these three exit lights over each of the doors that are battery powered and would remain on even if the power were to get cut off. And if in an emergency, we'd be able to follow those, those lights out the doors, out of this building and be saved and then survive because we're following the light. And in a similar way, Jesus is telling these people, I am the light, follow me out of the darkness. And this is how Israel survived in the wilderness and and in their wanderings there by following God's light in the pillar of fire, hovering over the tabernacle, leading them through the desert. But if Jesus is the light of the world and we must follow him, what does that practically look like? And what does Jesus mean by inviting us to follow him? First thing that means is following means seeing Jesus lifted up. Stay with me for a bit here. So Jesus already tells us in verse like 21 and 24, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then later on in verse 28, he tells the crowds how they will come to know who he is. And he tells them in verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. Then you will know literally I am. Throughout the John's gospel, this phrase lifted up It refers to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. When the the Jewish crowds would hand over Jesus to the Roman authorities and they would uh, flog him and and nail him to two wooden beams and hoist him up into the air to to suffer and die the death of a criminal. And Jesus is making a crazy statement and saying, when you have done that, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. You You can't know me truly for who I am until you see me lifted up. That somehow Jesus is most clearly revealed on the cross. To know Jesus rightly is to see him lifted up, to see him crucified, to save you. And through Jesus' sacrifice for us, Jesus becomes that new temple, that place where God and humanity can meet together. And he becomes that mediator, that ozone layer, the sunglasses, the sunscreen that we need to experience God's holy light without being Uh, overwhelmed or consumed by its goodness. And today, if you're just interested in Jesus 
as a, as a good moral teacher, someone with some, some, good, some wisdom that you can take and then apply to your life, but you're not looking to him as your crucified savior, someone who has died to save you, you're gonna be disappointed. As much as you try to put what he teaches into practice, you're gonna fall short and you're gonna be overwhelmed by your guilt, but you must look to Jesus crucified for you because that's when you truly see who he is and, and you uh, can use him as a mediator to reach God's holy light. Following is also more than seeking. So Jesus tells the crowds already in verse 21 that you will seek me after I die, uh, but you won't be able to find me. And, he, and Jesus contrasts the following that he desires his, his, his disciples to do with the seeking that the crowds are doing in this context. The seeking they are doing is mainly involving just satisfying intellectual curiosity. It's primarily concerned with information. There's no relational connection between him and Jesus. And they are, it's, they're seeking in a way that's primarily concerned with fitting and finding Jesus to fit their own preconceived notions. When Jesus says, you will seek after me after I've gone, he's not saying you're still gonna look for me, Jesus. He's saying you're still gonna be looking for another Messiah. You'll have missed me and you'll keep on looking for someone else to be who I've come to fulfill. But on the other hand, Jesus contrasts that seeking with following him and invites people to do that. And following is different because it involves your whole self. It's a way of life. It's not something you can just do once and be done with. It submits fully to the one being followed and it's primarily about relational intimacy, about being with the one you're following. If you didn't know, uh, because I haven't talked to you in the past two weeks, uh, my wife and I just got a dog. I don't think I've, I've shut up about it, but here's our wonderful dog, Milo. He's just such a cute, such a good boy. Um, but something that's really stood out to me about Milo in, the, in our first two or three weeks of having him as a pet is how much he follows me. Like I'll wake up every morning, I'll go let him out of his kennel, and he'll just start following me back and forth across the house as I'm like making coffee, getting ready for the day, doing you know, breakfast, he's just with me wherever I am. Even when I take him outside, out back, to let him go potty, he won't go outside unless I go out with him. If I try to open the door and close the door, he'll just stay at the door the entire time and like refuse to go out and go potty. And then as soon as I like start walking back towards the door, he bolts and like runs right back inside, up the stairs, back into our house. And that just has really showed me a cool picture of what it means to follow. Because following is about being with the person you're following and you want to be with that person. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And Jesus wants us. He desires us to be with him, not from what he can get from us or what we can get from him, but to have that relational intimacy and that desire just to be with him. Following is about being with the one you're following. And lastly, following is an ongoing action. So as Jesus says this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The, the word for following is a present participle. So that means is it means whoever is following me as opposed to whoever has followed me. You hear that difference? So, and we know this, right? To follow someone and, and to reach your intended destination, you have to follow them the entire way. So let's say today, for example, like after church, one of you were to invite me to go out for brunch. What an honor, it'd be so cool. Uh, but... <laughs> And you say, hey, let's go to some hole-in-the-wall br- place for brunch. I'm super excited for that. But you're like, it's hole-in-the-wall, so like Google Maps doesn't really take you there in a, in a good way. You just need to follow me to get there. I'm like, cool. So I hop in the car, start following you. After two blocks, though, I pull over on the side of the road and put in the park. I'm like, we're not there. I followed you for a little bit, but we didn't get to the restaurant. And I'm just kind of complaining and mad. And of course, you'd respond like, you're not following me. You followed me for a little bit, but then you stopped. In order to, to reach the destination, you have to follow someone the entire way. 
In a similar way, following Jesus and the kind of following that he envisions and wants from us and invites us to is a lifelong journey. It's not something you can do once and you reach the destination, you're all good. It's a lifelong journey of consistently following him. And that takes endurance and that's a hard thing to do. And that's why following is best done together. When we have one another to encourage each other uh, to stick stick it out for the long haul, darkness starts to creep into each of us when we're off on our own and we're not following with other people. But when we're with one another, and we, we're with one another who have Jesus, the light of life in them, we're able to have the endurance to keep following Jesus even when it's hard. So first, the reality. Jesus says, I am your light. Jesus invites us to follow him by seeing him as your savior, by being with him for the long haul with others. And third, if that happens, Jesus makes a promise, and he says, you will never walk in darkness because you have the light of life. This is a really bold statement. Verse 12 in, in, in John's gospel in Greek is a double negative statement. So it's literally, you won't not walk in darkness. Now, are there any English grammarians today in the house? That in, in English, and we have two negatives in a sentence, what does it make? Two negatives make a positive. Exactly. Wow, you guys are great with grammar. So, so you, will, you won't not walk in darkness. In English means you will walk in darkness. However, Greek and many other languages as well, two negatives don't make a positive. Two negatives make a super negative. (laughs) So instead of you won't not walk in darkness, what it really means is you'll never walk in darkness. You'll never ever walk in darkness. You'll absolutely, certainly, positively will not walk in darkness. It's the most powerful way in the Greek language to uh, negate or deny a statement. And so I love the way the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV and some other translations phrase it. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now, the, now if you're like me, this, this statement kind of scares you. Because it scares me. Have you ever, if you've ever you know, done any reading on kind of relational communication or done any premarital counseling like I have, uh, I, I've always heard, never say never. You know, absolutes are always bad. It's not a good way to communicate to people because there's always exceptions. But here Jesus, he says it anyways, and he makes an exception to that rule. But how can that really be true? Like, what does that mean? Do we experience that? that following Jesus means we'll never walk in darkness. Now, what that means, or what that does not mean, is that you won't stumble in sin because Jesus never promises perfection to his followers. And even though uh, when we do stumble in sin, often that's because we've stopped following Jesus is when that happens. But even that, Jesus never promises perfection for his disciples. Not walking in darkness does not mean that we won't feel like we're in darkness because of the pain or suffering around us. Because Jesus actually promises somewhere else in John's gospel that you will have trouble in this world. But no, never walking in darkness means that we are never alone. Even when it feels like there's darkness and suffering around us, we are never alone because we have within us the light of life. And I think Jesus shows us so clearly how that can be true in verse 28 when he speaks of himself. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, this is referencing his crucifixion, he says this, he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So even though in Jesus' darkest moment when he went to the cross, when it looked as though everyone 
God included, had abandoned him and forsaken him. So much so that he even cries out on the cross and he feels that absence of God and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even though that's what Jesus experienced, Jesus is saying the ultimate truth is that God is still with, still with me. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Ultimately, he was not alone and God showed him that by raising him from the dead three days later. And Jesus, as he's saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 from the Old Testament. And just one psalm over, which is Psalm 23, which is another psalm of David, and those psalms are read together so often in the Jewish tradition. In that psalm, we read in, in, verse 20, in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the same way, we do not walk in darkness because Jesus, the light of life, is within us. And if it's true for Jesus at his lowest moment on the cross, it is true for us as well in any suffering and pain that we go through. That we can trust that God is with us even when we're in darkness because Jesus suffered on our behalf, on our, in our place on the cross. John Mark McMillan, who's a Christian singer-songwriter, um, he, and he, he talks about how he struggled for many years with his faith and with doubt. And it was eventually, it was reflecting on Jesus's death on the cross and how that makes him different than any other God we could know or imagine, how that brought him back to a place of authentic faith. And he does this in his song. It's called The Road, the Rocks, and the Weeds. And I'm going to read you a few lines from that song because they, they illustrate this so perfectly. So he says this in his, in his song, come down from, from the stars, show your human scars. Tell me what it's like to believe. Come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of the God you know who bleeds. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a savior who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye, Olympus, the heart of my maker, is spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. That Jesus, more than any other God we could imagine, any other worldview, we worship a crucified God, a God who steps into the pain that we experience and actually has died in our place and ex experience excruciating suffering to be with us in our pain. And Jesus doesn't promise or even offer uh, a quick fix to our pain or suffering, but he does promise to be with us in it. And we can trust that because we worship a crucified God who went through suffering himself. I love how Edward Shilito, who is a, a, who is a British pastor during World War I, who is ministering to wounded soldiers, he puts it like this, to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but you alone. The God is, Jesus is that light, the unique God who, even though darkness tries to snuff him out, the more that tries to do that, he actually shines all the brighter. Mark Chagall was a Jewish painter who lived in, in uh, Russia during the Holocaust and even the Soviet oppression of Jews. And he paints this image called White Crucifixion in 1939. Um, and around, and in here he paints Jesus dying on the cross, surrounded by scenes of Jewish people being oppressed by Nazis and, and the Soviets. And, he, and so many people um, were kind of unsure if, if Mark Chagall was a believer or not, but, it's, but, he has paint, but he paints so many vivid crucifixions, and he was so intrigued by Jesus because of the image of, of, of God suffering with and alongside his people. And to me, this image shows so clearly to me that how Jesus' light shines all the brighter when the darkness tries to snuff it out. That here is Jesus in the midst of the suffering of his people, and there's a light coming down 
shining on him. And we, and we can trust through Jesus' death on our behalf that even when we're feeling like we're in those places of darkness and of suffering around us, that the light of the world is within us, bringing us through it. And, we, and this, this is was shown so clearly in Jesus' life, that he was crucified, darkness tried to snuff him out, but he rose from the dead three days later. The, his early followers, the early church, were oppressed and persecuted by the Roman Empire, but only the church remains today. And throughout history, the same story of Jesus' followers has repeated itself over and over again, and every person in this room who trusts in Jesus is a part of that same story. That though we feel like darkness may be around us, if we're with Jesus, the light of the world, we follow him, he promises that we will never walk in darkness because we're not alone, because we have the light of the world with us. And so in a moment, we're gonna close with a time of guided prayer to give us a chance to practice that truth and and relying and trusting on that truth together this morning. So I'm gonna give you some space to silently reflect on three things. First, what's an area of your life where you feel like you're walking in darkness? Could be a way that you're acting uh, that you know is not the way God has created and designed you to live. Could be a space where you're experiencing suffering. Could be a a space where you're feeling alone. And then I'm gonna give you times to name that to God. Then uh, second, we're gonna have a a space to uh, invite God to show us where his light is in those spaces where we feel like we're in darkness. And then lastly, we're gonna hear Jesus say to us, follow me, and we're gonna ask him to show us what that looks like. What does it practically look like for you today to follow him in that area? So would you please bow your heads and pray with me as we close? Lord, we confess today that, that you are light and that in you there is no darkness at all. You are the source of the goodness, truth, and beauty that we experience. And your goodness would even overwhelm us if it were not for Jesus, our mediator and savior. But you promise us, Jesus, that if we follow you, we will never walk in darkness because we have you, the light of life. But God, we confess today that our experience presents something different. And now we pause to silently identify, name to you, and bring to you that area that we feel like we are in darkness. Lord, we know that you're with us in each of these areas and we trust and we depend on you for that. And so now we pause and we silently ask you, God, to reveal your light to each and every one of us shining in that space of darkness. Jesus, thank you for being the light and you invite us as the light to follow you. And we hear you call out to each one of us, follow me. And we now pause to ask you, Lord, to guide us in these places where we feel like we're in darkness. What does it mean to follow you in that area of our life?
Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to follow you faithfully with endurance. Show to us where your light is shining. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we prepare now to take Holy Communion, take the Lord's Supper together, I'm reminded every time we do this each week of God's love for us through Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Now, no matter what area of darkness that